I want to start today's message by saying happy Lord's Day, brothers and sisters. It is always a highlight of the week, indeed the start of the week on Sundays, for us to gather and worship our Lord together. For He is worthy to be worshipped at the start of the week in this historical manner. So I want to start by saying happy Lord's Day, happy Sunday, and then I want to follow that by saying Merry Christmas. And I want to do it in that order, first Happy Sunday and then Merry Christmas, because biblically and historically, Sundays are a sacred, set-apart day of worship for the followers of Jesus. So while it is fun that today in our culture, uh, in our Western liturgical calendar, we celebrate Christmas, and in our sort of consumerist North American culture, they... I'll put quotes, uh, celebrate Christmas. Uh, it's, it's a greater joy for believers to be together as a family, as a local church on Sundays. And the fact that Christmas lands on Sunday this year uh, ought to just sweeten that for us. Now, in my conclusion today, I want to come back to this uh, opening statement about uh, uh, Happy Sunday and then Merry Christmas in that order. I want to reflect some more on it because culturally I think it's significant as well it is an issue that we will see in the text of Scripture this morning. Uh, this morning I will be continuing our Advent sermon series that we have entitled Conceiving Christmas. Conceiving Christmas is a sermon series that has been focused on the doctrine of the virgin conception, hence the play on words here, conceiving. This Christmas season, we've been exploring the dimensions of the doctrine of the virgin conception of the Christ child, whom we celebrate at Christmas. And today, being a cultural day of celebration of Christmas, it's uh, fitting that we continue studying this topic. And prayerfully, more, more than studying, this will be something that will uh, penetrate our minds so that we have something to muse on today as we go on about our day. And I don't know if there's going to be traffic or where you got to drive or who you got to see. And maybe it's stressful or maybe it's not. But, but that the Lord, through the ministry of His Word, would put something in your mind to muse over today as you go on and about your, your celebration today. And as well that the Lord would put something in our hearts uh, so that as we go on about our day, uh, that, that our hearts will be filled with grace and love and forgiveness and mercy that we can pour out on those who are around us. All of that said, would you open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a first century letter that reads a lot like an extended sermon. Uh, it, the author of the text is, is unknown. There's cases to be made for different historical figures that I will spare you on, but this morning I'll simply refer to the author of Hebrews. And ultimately, of course, the author of Hebrews is none other than the Holy Spirit who uses mortals to inspire the sacred text. This is a part of the sacred canon of, of Scripture from the very early church to us today. Uh, this is a text that breathes life into the church and has proven itself through the sands of time. It is a text that was written to Hebrews, hence it's called Hebrews, and specifically Hebrews who are following Jesus as the Messiah. Understand in the first century, being a Christian was a hard thing. Uh, it was particularly hard for Jewish people because the Jewish Messiah was largely rejected by the Jewish community. Not everyone, of course. Uh, many followed after him. But, but the hegemony, those in power of the Jewish culture in first century Rome, rejected him. So the priests and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the governmental elites, they largely rejected him. And, and, and as a result of this, those early Jewish followers of Jesus, particularly those who were poor and marginalized, were ever the more marginalized within their cultural context. They were marginalized within the Jewish context because they're following after the Messiah, and the Messiah and the early church was growing among the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were the oppressors of the Jewish people. So from the perspective of the Jewish community, if you were following Jesus, many would have seen you as an Uncle Tom or a sellout, like, what are you doing with the oppressors of our people? Why, why are you in cahoots with them? So you would be persecuted as a Jewish follower of Jesus from your own people, and as well you would be persecuted from the secular powers that were seeking to stamp out Christianity because it threatened the hegemony of Rome. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a double whammy if you're in a Jewish context. For Gentiles, you would be a bit more fluid. You could go in different spaces and have less of a hassle, but you would no doubt face persecution from the secular powers of Rome, but you'd have it a little bit 
bit more easy. Now, in terms of the Jewish context, though, you're catching it from your own ethnic community, your family, and then also from state powers. And so a lot of the writings in the New Testament deal with this dynamic and help process for the Jewish community what it meant to follow Jesus. As well for the Gentiles, what it meant to follow Jesus, not having a Jewish background. And so the writers of the New Testament labor to explain things to Gentiles that were obvious to the Jewish community. Now, all of that said, this letter or this extended sermon to the Hebrews is written to help them in this time of great persecution. They're getting hit at it from both sides. And, and it's, it's, it's a lose-lose situation for them. And so this book is written to help them process and also to explain theologically some things for them so, so that they'll be able to combat different uh, ideas that are floating around at the time. One of the ideas floating around at the time had to deal with the temple and the institution of the priesthood. What did it mean now that Jesus had come and died for our people? Do we still continue on in the temple? And what do we do with animal sacrifices? And what do we do with you know, the, the ways that we used to celebrate different festivals and what have you? The book of Hebrews is helping them process and make sense out of this. And one of the key themes in the text of Hebrews deals with the priesthood and the temple. And so this morning's message, as we continue the Conceiving Christmas series, has been entitled, Priestly Sympathy, How the Savior Relates. In this message, I want to continue unpacking the virgin conception, and we're going to see a biblical theme of priesthood in the book of Hebrews that helps us understand another dimension of why the virgin conception is so important, because without Mary in the manger, we don't have the priest of the book of Hebrews, and this is so important for us to understand. Now, in this message, I'll be tying together this concept of priesthood to virgin conception, and I'll be tethering it to the storyline of the Bible, the story of redemption. The virgin conception is crucial for us, we'll see this morning, because it gives us a sympathetic high priest who can relate to us in our humanity and mediate to us as God. Uh, in this series, I've been stressing to you the importance of understanding the storyline of the Bible uh, so that you understand that Christmas didn't happen in a vacuum. The story of Jesus doesn't begin in the manger. It doesn't begin with Joseph. It doesn't begin with Mary. It doesn't begin with shepherds. It doesn't begin with wise men. It doesn't, it doesn't begin with the New Testament itself. It goes back to the very beginning. It goes back into the Jewish scriptures and Jewish prophecy and Jewish history. Look at the text of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and see how the author drives this home for his audience. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. You see, the coming of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas, is a part of a bigger story. And the story goes back, Hebrews 1.1, to the fathers and to the prophets. The greatest of the prophets in the Jewish tradition is none other than Moses, who gave God's people the revelation of creation. And that's where the story of Christmas begins. It begins with the creation of the cosmos and humanity. So the first point that we have on our outline is made men. We've got to go back to the creation where God made humanity. In this series, we have begun with the beginning. In every message of this Advent series, I've been taking you to the book of Genesis. This morning, I'm also going to do that. I'm going to take you to the book of Genesis. But keep your finger in the book of Hebrews. We'll multitask. I'll, I'll throw, throw up here some cross-references from Genesis to connect some dots for us. So we begin with the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 28, you see in front of you. God makes humanity in His image. And notice here in verse 26 what He tells humanity to do. He gives them rule over the creation that He has made. It's very clear. In verse 26, He gives them rule over, you see that phrase? And then God blesses them in verse 28 and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. So there's rule and there's subduing, and then again you see the phrase rule there in verse 28. Now to rule and to subdue, these are terms that imply that there are hostile powers that are currently at present or will be at present, and when we get to Genesis 3, we see those hostile powers. They aren't earthly, they're heavenly. And against the backdrop of this story, there's an angelic rebellion that takes place of angels who rebel against God and are cast to the earth. 
The supreme leader of them, uh, the serpent, who we refer to as Satan or the devil, uh, he appears in Genesis 3 as, as the serpent who comes to, to bring humanity in cahoots with him to join the rebel army. And, and in a moment we'll see he was successful in this, but for sake of where we are here with the first point, that God made men, when God made men, humanity, he gave them rule and dominion, he told them to subdue, so they're stepping into the creation, made in his image as representatives of him to carry out his business in the earth. You have Hebrews 1 in front of you. Turn to the second chapter and draw your eyes at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. In, in the text here, we, we, we read in the text of this, this language of subjection. Right? In verse 5, you see, he did not subject... But the one is testified saying, verse 6, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned with him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Let's pause there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2 is affirming what we see here in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, Hebrews is actually quoting from the Hebrew Bible here. Specifically, you can write it down, Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. And in Psalm 8, 4 through 6, uh, the psalmist is talking about humanity. And he's talking about how, how humanity was crowned with glory. This is a, a language that fits with the image, being made in the image of God being appointed over the work of His hands. Humanity is given a task in creation to do. Humanity is supposed to put things in subjection to God. We're supposed to take what He has given to us and use it so that it's in proper order. The rhetorical question of Psalm 8 and also Hebrews 2, what is man, drives home rhetorically the reality that humanity isn't deserving of such a task. Why, why would you give that task to us? You know we're just going to mess it up. Why would, you do, why would you give that to us? And that brings us to the next point on the outline. We move from uh, made men to mess made. And here we see what we did with this task that was given to us. We made a mess out of it. Draw your eyes up, up here up front at Genesis chapter 3. We see the rebellion taking place. The serpent tempts our father and our mother. We read here in verse 6, that they partake of the forbidden fruit. We read in verse 7 that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. Now earlier in the text of Genesis, we're told that they, they were naked and unashamed. They're, they're, they're free. And you know the metaphor of, you know, of, of being naked. This isn't you know, uh, condoning nudist colonies or something like this. But you know when your kids, uh, you know, I got a five-year-old who's transitioning from that spot. But you, know, you go from that, hey, I'm naked and I'm running around the house and you know, whatever. But you know, like if I did that, it'd be really weird, right? Uh, so you know, you know what it is uh, psychologically, existentially, where you go through that transition of you're you're sort of aware that you know this is inappropriate, or you you know you don't need to see this or whatever. And so playing on this metaphor, this this experience of they're naked and they're free, but now they're not. Now now they are shamed. They're filled with shame and they're covering themselves. Even worse, look at verse eight up here. They hear they hear God walking. They sense His presence, and what do they do? The text says they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. This is the very beginning of what we call the fall, where humanity joined in the angelic rebellion, and now we're a, we're a part of the rebel army, and as a result, we no longer have this freedom and this love and, and what God has made us for, and even this, this task of, of dominion and subjection is now corrupted. And it all comes through our father and our mother. In the New Testament, let me give you another cross-reference here from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Through the one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all men sinned. Until the law there was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now, the language of type of him who was to come gets into typology, the shadows of the Hebrew Bible that are pointing to 
the one who is to come. And we've been talking about this in the storyline of the Bible. You get these shadows in the Hebrew Bible that just keep building, and foreshadowing is a part of storytelling. You know this in the great stories even of our culture and the great movies of our culture. You get these little pieces, and as you're moving, you learn more. And, and, and maybe you read the story a second time or watch the movie a second time or a third time, and then when you watch through it and you know the end, you start to pick up on that literary or storytelling device of foreshadowing. He's a type of him who was to come. Hebrews describes this problem of sin. It describes this point on your outline of the mess that we have made. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it describes the hardening of sin and the deceitfulness of sin. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it describes sin's power to entangle people. In fact, in Hebrews 12, 1, in the English text, it says, "...the sin that so easily entangles." And the word entangles and the word easily, in the original Greek language, it's actually one word, um, uperistastas. Uh, and it's actually a, a compound word. U is a word in the Greek that, that means good. We talk about euangelion, the good news. Angelos is news or message. Euangelion, the good news, the gospel. So uperistastas. U meaning good, peri is a word that means to come around, and histeme is a word that means to stand. Together this word describing sin then uh, creates this picture of something that is good at surrounding someone and taking them down. It's a very powerful image that, that sin is like a thing that's really good at surrounding you and taking you down. In the book of Genesis, the prophet Moses describes sin as, as crouching at the door of a home, just waiting to come in to, and devour you. This, the sin of the fall, then, uh, it, it permeates, as Romans 5 says, and passes on to all humanity, and it is entangling, it is deceitful, it is hardening, it's crouched at the door. The language of the Bible wants you to understand that, that sin is dangerous. It's poisonous. It's a poisonous snake. And it's important to understand that because sin would lead us to believe that it's more cotton candy. It's a tree, you know, have some. Just a little nibble. And then it gets you on the line and hook sink. It takes you down. You peristastas. It takes you down. It weighs you down. It fills you with guilt. It fills you with shame. What we see in Genesis. No doubt what we see in our own lives. I was recently reading an article from, by a licensed therapist that was describing the psychosomatic experience of guilt and shame uh, and, and describing it in these kind of biblical ways of how it weighs us down. You know guilt and shame? Have you ex you've experienced it before? Or am I all alone up here? Guilt and shame, yeah? It can make your chest tight, can't it? You can feel it in your body. You can feel it in your body. To quote this licensed therapist, she writes, Guilt is a painful human emotion that nearly everyone experiences at some point in life. The feeling of guilt may be terrible. It isn't a bad emotion. Guilt occurs when our behavior conflicts with our internal moral compass. The author goes on to note, Every emotion has a, a physiological response in the body, and often, the more intense of the emotion, the more intense response is likely to develop. Guilt that causes an intense response may trigger the fight-or-flight response in the body, which can result in many physical symptoms. The symptoms you may experience when the fight-or-flight response is triggered by guilt are rapid heart rate, fast breathing, hyperventilation, a spike in blood pressure, chest pain, nervousness, shaking or dizziness, feeling faint or nauseated, and difficulty concentrating. Anybody feeling that right now? You're like, oh my gosh, that, that's me, right? And then if you're a hypochondriac like I am, you, you know, you, you go on WebMD and you make yourself sick, but WebMD actually has an article on guilt and health and how guilt brings anxiety and depression and sleep problems and stomach issues and, and muscle tension. Guilt is a powerful thing, and it eats away at our bodies. It's a powerful thing in a good way because it, it can check you. And so the book of Romans even talks about how God put, places within us a conscience and it keeps us from doing things. But this, this isn't the good kind of guilt that's sort of keeping you from danger. This is, in the fall, this guilt that we're all inheriting, this concupiscence that we all inherit 
and it's weighing us down. It is literally, slowly suffocating and killing us. Our bodies are being riddled away by this reality of guilt and shame. And as a result, it is no wonder that statistically 10 out of 10 people die. Because 10 out of 10 people sin. And 10 out of 10 people have guilt and shame. Now, now why, why, why do we die? You know, well, the Bible explains it. It explains it and ties it to sin. Well, well that's horrible news. What should we do about this? Well, there's good news. We can find mediation. That moves us from uh, made men to mess made to the third point, mediation must. We need mediation. Because this guilt is not going anywhere without mediation. Further and more dangerously, because there is nowhere where we can hide from God. He is omnipresent. And even further and more dangerously, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, which is referenced on this point for you to jot down. Hebrews 12, 29 tells us that God is a consuming fire. That, that's the reality. Uh, many in our culture uh, picture God like Father Time or some, you know, some chubby guy on a couch or whatever. When I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God you know, what I think. Or, you know, why did you do this? And you're like, no, you're, no, you're not. I mean, the first part, when you get to heaven, that's sort of what we're, you know, we should be dialoguing about. But secondly, uh, he's a consuming fire. So you're not going to be running up in there trying to chin check him. He's God. He's a consuming fire. He's not to be trifled with. He's, he's holy. He's beyond. He's, he's, he's absolutely incredible. Now, in Genesis, when our parents joined in with the rebellion of angels and brought this rebellion into the earth, we saw that they hid and they covered himself. Now, God, God who is a consuming fire, distances himself in the book of Genesis. He exiles them from the garden, and he does so for their own good, because in their sin, they can't stand in his presence. They covered themselves with fig leaves, the, the text told us, as we saw earlier. Now recall that their sin involved eating from the tree, the forbidden fruit. And so in covering themselves with, with the fig, they're actually covering themselves and making themselves in the image of the thing they just engaged in. They're making themselves look like the very idol they just succumbed to. We ate from the tree, and now we take elements of the tree to cover themselves. There's a play here that you've been made in the image of God and now sin is marring that image and in your sin you actually end up looking like the thing that you just worshipped. And that is the case, truly. When you have idols in your life, you end up becoming like them. And idols will continue to demand more and more of you that they cannot deliver on. You will find yourself miserable, you will find yourself looking like them, and here is our mother and father looking just like the tree they ate from. But behold, the God who comes and says, I'm going to be gracious to you, and I'm going to provide mediation for you. Give me those stupid fig leaves, and I'm going to cover you with something that, that will mediate for you. And we read in the text of Genesis 3, verse 21, let me put this in front of you, we read about how the Lord made garments of skin for them. He replaced the, the figs with flesh, you see, and he clothed them, the text says. Genesis 3 goes on to describe how they were exiled from paradise, as I was saying, driving home again the need for mediation, but by clothing them, he gives them temporary covering. He gives them a kind of mediation. What does mediation mean, by the way? If you look it up in the dictionary, a standard definition will say something like this, to intervene in a dispute to bring about an agreement or reconciliation. Our word mediate actually comes through Middle English and through Latin from a word that literally means to place in the middle of, and that's what a mediator does. Party one has an issue against party two, and a mediator stands in between them and says, let's, let's work on this. I'm the middleman, let's work on this. What kind of middleman do we need in terms of our sin? Genesis 3, uh, with the taking of flesh here, is foreshadowing of a kind of mediator who will come ultimately in the flesh. In Genesis 3, 7, the shameful humans cover themselves with fig leaves from the tree. They begin to look like the idol that they've worshipped. They've entered into the kingdom of darkness. But God graciously comes to them and clothes them and covers them. And in so doing, He takes something innocent, something innocent gives its life for them. Now, in doing this, this points to a mediator that is to come in the flesh. And it points not just to a fleshly thing, but also a divine thing that is to come. For notice in the text of Genesis, it is God who clothes them. 
So we see in the shadows of the storyline that there is mediation needed, and there is a mediation that needs to be flesh and also needs to be divine. We follow the storyline of, of Genesis all the way up to Christmas, and we see when the clothing, the permanent clothing, is fulfilled. It is no wonder that the Apostle Paul speaks in Galatians 3.27 of being clothed in Christ. And two verses later in Galatians 3.29, he speaks of being heirs according to the promise. That is the story of redemption, the story of promise, the promised seed and the covenants and being clothed in Him. The baby in the manger has the innocent flesh that will cover us. It will cover us. It will metaphorically cover God's people, the flesh of the baby in the manger. And the blood will literally be shed for us. I hope you still have Hebrews open. And would you turn uh, now to the ninth chapter in the book of Hebrews and find your way to the 22nd verse. We read in Hebrews 9, 22, according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. Hebrews 9, 22, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I, I shared with you the background in Jewish culture and temple and priesthood, and you know, in the storyline, these are things that are pointing to the coming of, of the one who fulfills these things, you see. But at that time in the first century, there's a transition of the old to the new. And a lot of people are trying to make sense out of this. Like, okay, what does this mean now? You know, it's like when, I don't know, a new law comes out. And you're like, so, like, can I, do I still smog it at the same place? Or, you know, what does this mean? You know, uh, oh, you got different pronouns. Okay, uh, well, what am I going to do about it? You know, so people will throw stuff your way. And you got to kind of make sense out of, okay, what does this mean now? You see, the old had gone and the new had come. And people are going, what does this mean? The temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood. Wait, Jesus is the temple and the sacrifice and the priesthood? Okay, 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 okay. So he's processing that and he says, we know without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. We know that. For hundreds of years, God has revealed this to us. Draw your eyes at chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. So there's the language of shadows, foreshadowing, that literary technique, right? And you, you're giving little pieces, and these are pointing to things. So the sacrifices under the law, if you look up here, juxtaposed with the sacrifice of Christ, you, you see what the shadows are pointing to. The sacrifices of the law remind us of sin. The sacrifice of Christ removes sin. The sacrifices of the law repeat constantly, as you see here in the language of Hebrews, Hebrews 10.1, year by year by year. They repeat constantly, but the sacrifice of Christ is once for all time. The sacrifices under the law build anticipation. The sacrifice of Christ is fulfillment. The sacrifices of the old are shadows. The sacrifice of Christ is the substance. The blood of animals we see in the law, the blood of Christ we, we see in the new covenant. We see the sacrifices under the law are involuntary, but in Christ it is voluntary. It's all foreshadowing. Let's keep reading Hebrews and let's drive this home. Hebrews chapter 10, draw your eyes at verse 2. Otherwise, would it had not been ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. These verses are quoting uh, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. If you want to jot that down and study it later, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which is an ancient psalm that is associated with King David. The author of the Hebrews is tying the seed of the promise from Abraham to David to Christ. Uh, uh, and further, here the author presents Christ as the speaker of Psalm 40. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, for you have not taken pleasure in, the, in them, which are according to your law. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Christmas produces the body of Christ. No Christmas, no body, 
no body, no sacrifice. More specifically, in the virgin conception, Jesus receives his human nature and flesh, which will become the sacrifice for sin. More, more specifically, in the virgin conception, you not only have human flesh, but you have the divine substance of the Godhead in flesh. It is important for us to understand when we're talking about Godhead and God that we, uh, as Christians, we affirm that there is one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. That is to say, three persons in the one true and living God. If you want to know if you're in a cult group or not, or if your friends are in a cult group or not, or really one of, one of, the, one of many questions that we can ask, but kind of the big ones are like, who is God? What is God? Is there one God in three persons? And what is a person? So they don't, uh, you know, switch terms and do something like a title, say. You know, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, I'm a neighbor. Yeah, no, no, you're one person, so that doesn't work. You know, are there three persons in the one true and living God or not? This is basic and fundamental to Christianity. As well, what is basic and fundamental to our faith is, is the problem of sin and what must we do to be saved, and if salvation is the free gift of God or not. We'll get to that later. But, but for now, what's important to understand is, and what the, the author to the Hebrews is driving home, is that the Christ child who becomes the sacrifice and also becomes the priest is more than a mere man. He is also God, and specifically God the Son. It is God the Son who has incarnated himself. And so in God the Son, in Christmas, in the incarnation, you have the one person of the Son who has become fully God and fully man. If you mess around with there being one person in the Son, or you mess around with him being fully God and fully man, you are gonna, you're going to fall into uh, various versions of heresies. In fact, a, a simple way of diagramming this, and this could be a teaser for our church history course. I would love to see you there because uh, ancient church history, we study a lot of bad ideas and heresies that come along the way, such as Arianism, Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, Nestorianism. Don't worry about the terms if you're unfamiliar with them. But if you mess up the one person of God, you fall into this air. Uh, if you mess up the two natures of God in Christ, you fall into this air. If you say he's fully God, but you, know, you deny you know, he's fully man, then you, 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 can, you, you can mess up one of these ways. Arians actually said he wasn't fully God, but they did believe he was man, but that, that's not everything. Apollinarians deny that he was fully man, uh, but they did believe he was fully God, so you're going to lapse into error. The, the ancient church proclaimed, the Bible proclaims, there is one God in three persons, and one of those three persons, the Son, sent of the Father by the Spirit, took on flesh, so that he is one person, the Son, who's fully God and fully man. Uh, if I lost you, here's a helpful illustration that Alan Schleimann, who's a, an apologist at Santa Reason, gave to try and help people understand. He used superheroes, okay? So here's Batman, Spider-Man, uh, Superman, and the Hulk, you know? And so you think about, you know, Batman, you know, is he really a bat? You know, he's not fully bat, right? So that doesn't work. You think about Superman, he's not fully human, right? He's like alien. He, he like looks human, but he's not technically a human. He's, you know, so he's not fully, you know, Spider-Man doesn't exactly have two natures. He just got a little uh, spidey sauce that mixed in with his blood. And the Hulk, you know, he goes in between being Bruce Banner and the Hulk. And so he's kind of, you know, he's bipolar or whatever. That's not exactly what Jesus is. Now, while I find this interesting and helpful, maybe for a youth group and maybe some adults in the room, of course, uh, we, we need to be careful at using illustrations when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation of Jesus. It's, it's best just to let the ancient creeds and the scripture do the work for us. We need to let the scripture do the explaining. And this is what we see in the text of Hebrews. We, we, see, I, I, we see that the, the Christ child born in Christmas is fully human. We see that the Christ child born in, in that manger is also fully God. And this brings us to the next point on our outline. We move from mediation to Messiah. The Messiah that we need must be divine and must be a man. Now, would you go back uh, to Hebrews chapter 2? We read a little bit out of Hebrews chapter 2 and the point that I had, the opening point about made men, and we looked at the rhetorical question, you know, what is man that you're mindful of him? Now let's come back to that text again. 
Verse 6 of Hebrews 2. What is man that you are mindful or remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little while lower than angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And you've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. And in subjecting all things to him, you've left nothing as not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all the things subjected to him. Now earlier I noted that this is quoting from Psalm 8, 4 through 6. And the psalmist is talking about humanity, uh, you know, Imago Dei, being made in the image of God, and, you know, having the task of subjection, which is what we see in Genesis and in the dominion mandate. But here something else is going on. He's not just talking broadly about humanity. He starts talking about a specific human who has the title Son of Man. Do you see that in verse 6? Or the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is used in the Hebrew Bible collectively for, for humanity. It's also used sometimes prophetically. But it's also used for a specific figure in prophecy who is the Messiah. In fact, Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself in the New Testament is this phrase, Son of Man. When you ask Jesus, who are you? He goes, Son of Man. And if you know your Hebrew Bible, you go to Daniel and you go, well, the Son of Man is the divine figure who comes riding on the clouds and enters into human history. Yeah, that's exactly who Jesus is. He's divine and he's human. He's the Son of Man. In the Greek text here of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2, in this verse, the author is applying the text, yes, broadly to humanity, but specifically to Christ as the Son of Man. Look at verse 9. But we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of the death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, Jesus, right? Uh, for whom all things and through whom all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to uh, perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Christmas gives us the Son. Christmas gives us the Son with a human soul. Christmas gives us the Son with a human will and a human mind and a human spirit and a human body and all of that, his, his body, his will, his soul, his spirit, all of that will suffer and do so in our place and ultimately die on the cross in our place. Move from Hebrews chapter 2 over to Hebrews chapter 4 and look in verse 15. Because the Christ child has all of what we have, he's fully human, Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's, not there's so much that could be said here about the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. Suffice it to say, while Christ cannot be tempted by sin because He is God, the eternal son is also man, and in his human nature, he can undergo kinds of temptations and trials. Uh, albeit, he's not born in sin like we are. The virgin conception gives us a human who's like our first parents. And this is why the virgin conception is important to understanding Christ's priesthood, because it gives us a pure human. But as a, as a human, nevertheless, he knows what it is to live in the fallen world. He has human emotions. We see Jesus crying. We, we see Jesus fatigued. We see Him tired. We see Him laboring. We see Him suffering with physical pains. We see Him taking naps. We see pain deep within His soul. He had a tight chest. He had an aching stomach. We see Him alone. We see Him down. We see Him hurt. We see Him rejected. We see Him misrepresented. We see Him lied about, attacked, ridiculed, mocked, misrepresented, and more. Behold our mediator, church, the one who knows the pains of this life. And you see that in the manger, in the crying baby, weak and frail, and yet that's almighty God. This ought to be so powerful to us. In fact, this is why following, saying we have a sympathetic high priest, he says, therefore you can run to him and know that he intimately understands. This is our mediator. This is powerful to us. This is absolutely incredible to us that we have one who we can run to who understands everything that we are going to, through. The point on your outline here is the Messiah is a man. In Christmas, you have the eternal Son becoming a man. And His occupation will be that of a priest. 
And so here in the, in the text of Hebrews, from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, the author starts explaining to the reader, he's our priest, he's our priest, he's our priest, and he's a perfect priest, just as he is a perfect sacrifice. In those days, the priesthood came through the, the line of Aaron and the Levites. The author to the Hebrews lifts up the priesthood of Christ as Melchizedekian. It's another line of priests that Abraham himself paid tribute to. And because Abram's the father of promise and Abram paid tribute to the Melchizedekian priesthood, he trumps that of Aaron and the Levites. It's, it, it's a powerful argument in its context. Being 2,000 years removed, you, we might not appreciate it, but it, it's absolutely powerful. Draw your eyes at, at Hebrews chapter 8 and look, if you will, at verse 6. It talks about his excellent ministry in verse 6 of Hebrews 8. The mediator of the better covenant that he has enacted for his promises. Look at Hebrews 8, 7. For it is the first covenant that has been faultless. If it were faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second for finding fault with him. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. For this, verse 10, is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And I will put my laws in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and, and they will be my people. Look at verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now that for the first century Jewish context, again, recall that they were attacked from both ways. That was a huge issue. Uh, because so much of your cultural identity was wrapped in the cultural rhythms of going to temple and priesthood and whatever. And those, those weren't like drudgery. Those were fun things to do. That's a part of your holidays and families getting together, coming to town. We're going to go to the temple. And, and now Christ has come and he's fulfilled all of that. And, and that created some cognitive dissonance for people. But here's the thing. It's the difference between looking at a picture of someone and having the person there. When, when I have to leave the country, I miss my family. I, I, pack, I, I pack pictures. My wife even will sneak letters into my bags and, and print little pictures in them. And as I'm about and I'm missing my family, I pull out a picture and I, oh, I miss them, oh, I miss them. Or I go on Facebook, oh, they're posting stuff, oh, I miss them, right? But after a long flight home and a, a, you know, a Uber drive to the house, uh, when I get there and I'm get, trying to find my keys out of my bags and I hear the noises, in particular Jeremiah, because that kid is loud, ask the neighbors, and I hear the noises inside the house and I open the door, right? How odd would it be for me if the kids come running and my wife comes running to give me a hug and I go, wait a second, I'm going to finish looking at this picture. What are you doing, right? It's there. It's fulfilled. They're there. You're together. So the temple, the priesthood, all that are, are pictures to point you to the one who is to come. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered into the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not of the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. Where does he get that blood from? By the Spirit through Mary. No Christmas, no body, no blood, no sacrifice. Christmas ties to this. Christmas helps us see this, this big story, our need for mediation and who the Messiah is. We, we need a Messiah who will redeem us. We've seen in this study, I've quoted several times the book of Galatians, and it talks about Christmas this way. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, because the law is what condemns us. So He comes under the law as a man so that we can receive sonship. In Galatians chapter 3, For as many are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written under the book of the law to perform them. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We read in verse 13. Having become a curse for us, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And so, so in Christmas, we get, we get the, the body and the human soul and all that that's going to die in our place, but we keep in mind that we also have the divine mediator of the new covenant in the Christ child. And He sets us free from the law. He gives us a new temple. He gives us not a picture, but a person Himself and says, run to Me, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Your guilt and shame will be lifted. 
Your penalty will be paid. I will do that for you. And that story of Christmas fits in with this grand picture. So then we move to the meaning of the message. Next point. And if I could draw you to Hebrews chapter 4. In fact, this week, if you sit down and spend like 20 minutes and read through Hebrews, hopefully this, you know, jumping around and pulling some of the key themes will help you to really appreciate it. Come back to Hebrews 4.15. We already read it, but he says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in, in our time of need. Here, here we really get at the meaning at a personal level. You've had a time of need, no doubt, in your life. Have you ever had a time of need and no one was there for you? Your friends who said they had your back, they were really way back, right? Uh, you ever have a, a need for someone to defend you and no one's there? You ever been attacked and misrepresented and no one, no one jumps in to protect you? You ever have needs and there's no one there to help you? Jesus is there in your time of need. And our greatest need is not more loyal friends or whatever. Our greatest need is mediation. And, and Hebrews assures us that he is the best at this. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and he, having been made perfect, Hebrews 5, 9, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He came to suffer for us, to free us, to pay this debt that we owed because we owed a debt that we could not pay. Christmas is a season of debt, no doubt. Maybe you're feeling the sting of it, going, oh my goodness, we spent too much, right? We know what debt is. We know what it is when you get over your head and you can't pay. Christmas is a proclamation of one who has paid it for you. And the book of Hebrews is giving you this hope that the one who makes the payment isn't a third party. He's the mediator, smack dab in the middle. Fully God, so he represents God and has the prerogative of forgiveness. And fully man, so that he can stand in our place and pardon us for our sins. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all and the testimony at the proper time. So, so Hebrews drives this home. The New Testament drives this home. Don't, don't be confused, first century audience. You don't need to go back to the pictures. You have the person. Many of them had gone back to the pictures and had walked away from the faith, and so the Hebrews were very discouraged because they went from these large and thriving local churches that got diminished as people were going back to the temple and walking away from the Lord. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the author says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Hebrews chapter 10, if you would look at Hebrews 10, please, in verse 23, the author says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Keep coming together, he says. Keep the mission moving, he says. It was hard times, as I shared with you, the historical context. It's hard times. You've got persecution coming at you, and people are walking away. And so for those who are still staying and scrambling and trying to keep the mission moving forward, they're, they're facing discouragement as they're looking around and they're wondering, where is so-and-so? And, and, and remember the good old days or whatever, and, and, and they're still pressing on and they're discouraged. And here comes Hebrews. Let me encourage you. Press on. Don't walk away. You keep going. Now, in the introduction of my message this morning, I, I very specifically said, I want to begin by greeting you to Sunday. Happy Sunday. And then I said, secondly, I want to, to say Merry Christmas. Um, and I said, I'll come back to it at the end, and here we are at the end. I think it's significant that we have Hebrews before us and a people who are discouraged uh, because on this very day, and in fact in the last few years, many believers are really discouraged in their local churches. Churches got rocked hard in the last few years. 
uh, and, and friends and fellowship and the rest have been impacted hard. And this Sunday of all Sundays has been one that statistically in our culture, I don't know if you've watched the news, here's one report that you can look at. Uh, here's the title, Many Churches Cancel Services on Christmas Day. Enjoy some time with your family. Uh, we're seeing churches closing down on Christmas. We're seeing stats of, uh, of churches just calling it quits altogether, church plants giving up, and, and it's been a discouraging few years. In the Bible, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read of how on the first day of the week, believers gathered for corporate worship celebrating the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, the Apostle Peter, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul commanded believers on the first day of every week, speaking of their corporate worship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, Paul designates the, the offering of 1 Corinthians 16, 2 as a part of this corporate worship service. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, it, we see the nomenclature of calling it Lord's Day. Lord's Day in the New Testament, Sunday in the New Testament, was a big deal to the ancient church. Beyond the New Testament, we see in the first century, at the same time of the apostles and their disciples, that Sundays were a big deal. For example, in the Didache, which is a book, uh, Didache means the teaching of the Twelve, it dates around 70 AD. Sunday was Lord's Day in the Didache. It was a time for corporate worship of the church. In Didache 14.1, we read, Every Lord's Day gather yourselves together. And it is worth noting that ancient Christians did not consider Sunday as a new Sabbath, like the Sabbath of the Old Covenant, because they saw Christ as the Sabbath that fulfilled the Old Sabbath. So suffice it to say, if you were the readers of the Hebrews, you would have still culturally observed some Sabbath things, some Shabbat, but you would also gather with the church on Sunday. And so really your weekend would be devoted to corporate worship. Now, I say this because the church in North America is facing increasing problems with decreased attendance. And it appears to be worsening. Uh, the craving for God's Word is gone, so the churches that are growing are ones that aren't teaching the Bible and, and, and lovingly bringing the hard truths of Scripture. So the churches that, that, that are growing are offering something that doesn't look anything like biblical and ancient Christianity. There is now the rise of churchless Christianity, where you have people who self-identify as Christian, but they're unknown in a local church, and they're not active, and they don't participate. And of course, we have the phenomenon of today where many churches have chosen to close. Now, of course, I understand church planners who don't have buildings and whatnot, and it could be hard for them to open. I, I'm not getting at that as much as I'm getting at those who own buildings. And uh, coming to church on time on a Sunday just isn't a priority. Being at church on a Sunday morning, it isn't a priority. In this particular article that's in front of you, you see in the subtitle there, the historic gathering of Sunday worship is exchanged for well, we need to have some family time together. Which is quite an insult to the local church that is the family above all families in terms of the Bible. Uh, Christ was very specific in terms of who your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters are in the establishment of his church. Ra rather than uh, seeing this, uh, we've, we've succumbed to a consumeristic culture. I've seen some memes that will help you creatively sort of process this and hinting at it, <laughs> you know, Here's uh, Drake, cancel church on Sunday, uh, you know, to have more family time. No, just bring your church to, bring, bring your family to church on Sunday. Cancel church on uh, Christmas Sunday. Hold church on Christmas Sunday. Bring family to church on Christmas Sunday. And the memes are floating around about it, but, you know, the memes have a way of really uh, getting at things, don't they? I don't know about you, but the last few years, the memes have definitely kept me uh, off the edge. The thing for us to remember is that historically, church... And Sunday, that wasn't a cultural thing. It was a biblical thing. It's tied to the resurrection of Christ on Sunday. And the early church saw this as sacred. And the New Testament, as I gave you examples as well, saw this as sacred. December 25th uh, isn't something that we see in the New Testament or the early church. Now, I th there is a historical argument for Christ being born on December 25th that I'm not going to uh, get into, but the fact that it falls on a Sunday is, is not a reason for people to close their churches. Again, the memes kind of help you process here. I uh, like the Batman Robin one. But Christmas is on Sunday. Church is every Sunday. Uh, or church is every Sunday. Change my mind. In the 25 years that I've been in ministry here, Christmas has landed on Sunday in 2005, 2011, 2016, and today. And every time we've held service on Sunday without question and without debate, 
And I thank God for that, Delray Church, uh, because all, all of these memes get at something that thankfully in our church is a non-issue for us. But as we look out in the culture, we still see, right? There are people who are saying, eh, it's not important. Not just on Christmas Sunday, but in general. When you look at the stats of, of, of people's involvement in terms of, of, of attendance, and I pray the next time this occurs in 2023, we'll see a revival in our country where, where, where you won't see this kind of phenomenon, where, where believers would say, over our dead bodies would we cancel church, because you know what? That is our historical tradition. It was over our dead bodies that we canceled church on Sunday. When you study the ancient church, you have account after account after account of our brothers and sisters who literally bled out and died for sake of being at church on Sunday. You know, almost every year in North America, there's a tax on Christmas. Someone comes out, you know, the virgin birth, that was stolen from pagans. Or, you know, Jesus had a wife and moved to France. You know, every year, Newsweek or, whoever, you know, YouTube has every village idiot making some, you know, video about Christmas isn't true. You know, every year the attacks come, you know. Or the, you know, the big businesses want to, you know, oh, we're not saying Christmas anymore. It's just happy holidays or whatever. Every year there's some, you know, attack on Christmas. But it seems to me in, in recent years, and we, it's not the attacks on Christmas coming from the outside. It's the ones coming on the inside. That, that we're just, it's just not important to us. It's just not, it's, it's not important to us. I mean, I, I, I never understand why people who claim to not believe in something care so much about it. Uh, so when atheists and anti-Christians want to attack us, I just go, I don't understand why you're so worked up. I mean, there's lots of stuff I don't believe in, but I'm not making TikTok videos about it. Um, and so every year we sort of expect that. But, but what we, we ought not to expect, and what Hebrews is saying, don't forsake the assembling together. Uh, speaking of those who bled out and died for this, Justin Martyr, who's a historical figure, he lived, he's in the first century, Okay? And, and he writes in the first century about what the church looked like. Forgive an extended quote here, but reading from his first apology, he, he writes, Over all that we receive, we bless the Maker of all through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles and writings of the prophets are read. Old and New Testaments, right? As long as time permits... And when the reader has finished, the ruler in a discourse instructs and exhorts to the, limitation, to the imitation of these good things. And then we all stand together and we offer prayers. And as said before, when we finish prayer, bread is brought and wine and water. And the ruler, this is a term they used for pastor at the time, likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability. And the people assent saying, Amen. And the distribution and the partaking of the Eucharized elements is to each. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And those who prosper and so wish contribute what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with, with the pastor who takes care of the orphans and the widows. And those who on account of sickness or any other cause are in want. And those in bonds and strangers who are sojourners among us. And in a word, he is the guardian of all those in need, and we all hold common the gathering on Sunday, since it is the first day on which God, transforming darkness and matter, made the universe. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. For they crucified him on the day before Saturday, and on the day after Saturday he appeared to his apostles, disciples, and taught them these things which we have passed on to you also for your consideration. Justin uh, was publicly tortured, and they cut his head off. He was publicly beat, tortured, stripped naked, and they chopped his head off. And, and he goes down writing in history, you don't miss Sundays. I'll, I'll die for this. I'll bleed out for this. You know what the Roman Empire did on Sundays? They met at the Colosseum and watched sports. You know what they did in those sports? They threw Christians in those arenas and had them eaten publicly by lions. You know what Christians did in those arenas before they were thrown to lions, while they were held in cells, about to be thrown to lions? They had Sunday worship services before they were thrown to lions. Now, all of this to say, all of this to say, it's not a thing of the past. This is still going on today. 
In North, Korean, in North Korea, Christians are considered hostile elements to be eradicated. In Afghanistan, Christianity is not uh, permitted to exist. In Islamic State, by constitution, the country does not permit faith of any kind other than Islam to exist. In Somalia, estimates suggest that 99% of Somalis are Muslims, and they persecute Christians. Believers in Libya face abuse and deadly violence. Uh, you could go down the line, go down the line. Uh, Libyan uh, converts, uh, I could, I, I, I'll spare you, globally, the church is continuing to suffer for sake of Sunday. And, and of course, in North America, we're not scandalized by Christian suffering in the world. No, we're too preoccupied about a WNBA player who got, you know, was in Russia in a jail cell for smoking some hash or whatever it was, right? We're, we're scandalized by that, and our media is consumed with that. Meanwhile, every single day, statistically, 11 Christians are murdered for their faith. And we're not in an outrage about it. We're not in an outrage about it. In fact, we're not even in an outrage that we exchanged a notorious arms dealer uh, you know, for a WNBA player. Uh, jokingly, someone said, uh, the U.S. traded the Michael Jordan of arms dealing for Brittany Griner of basketball. I thought that was a zinger. But you, you look at that and you go, man, our world is a mess. Don't be discouraged. That's me, Pastor Matt, talking to you, Delray Church. And you know what? That's the author to the Hebrews talking to the audience. The world is a mess. You know, the churches are falling apart, and it looks like we're losing this battle, but, but don't be worried about this. In Hebrews chapter 12, what, what does he tell them? He says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, it's on the heels of chapter 11, which is a count of people dying, dying, dying. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As the priest, when you're finished with your job, you sit down. And Jesus just mic drops in the heavens and says, I'm done. The sacrifice is paid. He's the priest and the sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God. He's the priest of God. He has come to set us free. He has come to, 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 to fulfill every failure that we have made. So in talking even about church attendance, yeah, 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 I need to be better at that. Or we could talk about prayer and you go, yeah, I need to pray more. Or we could talk about holiness. You go, yeah, I need to sin less. Or we could talk about any, any given thing, and you, you hear it, and you go, ah, oh, yeah, I fall short in that area, right? But the message of Christianity is not you need to do better. The message of Christianity isn't do, it's done. And so it lifts our guilt and shame, because I realize he accepts me. He accepts the church in North America, even though they're prioritizing other things than him. He still loves them and calls them to himself. And he calls all of us to himself to say, put me first. Seek me and you will be found. Run to me and you will be washed. Come to me and my spirit will fill you and carry you. All of your brokenness, all of guilt, all of the shame, all of the regrets, all, all of that in him, you can run to him. So now we come to the communion table. We're going to close our, 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 our sermon, our, our service with a time of worship. We're going to reflect on this message before us of our sympathetic high priest who has come for us, of this virgin conception that provides for us the human that none of us are, and that that human isn't just human, he's also God. So he reconciles us to God and makes everything right. And we all come today with you know, things in our life that ought not to be the case. But what you want to hear in that is come to him. You who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Come to him. You are guilty and shameful. And he's not going to shake his finger at you. He's going to embrace you and forgive you and receive you and fill you. The, the, the Christ child, the story of Christmas, it's a grand, grand story of redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Behold the perfect blood that has been poured out for us. So as we come to the table, you've got little cups with juice that represent that. You have little crackers that represent his body. And as we partake in this, we realize that, that we've received this from him, this great gift 
the greatest gift of Christmas is himself, and hence there's no better place to be for us to be, to be here and to be celebrating him. And Sunday sacred to us. Don't be discouraged, church. Don't be discouraged. Carry on the mission. Keep on preaching the gospel. And keep on striving to be conformed to the image of that gospel. Because, you know what? It's not a message that's for those out there. It's a message that's for us in here. Never grow tired of it. Never grow tired of it. It just gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. Let's come. Let's worship Him, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the riches of the book of Hebrews. I thank you for the example of the saints of old. In Hebrews 11, the author just goes down a genealogy of martyrs. And as we saw just in some sampling of church history this morning of how your church suffered to, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, that it would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Rome to Los Angeles, and it would do so through those who would give their lives for it. Oh Lord, we're in a culture that distracts us, that constantly is telling us this is more important than the things that are truly important to you, the things that you have called us to and saved us for. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't be discouraged. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and that we would know that uh, we're prone to wander and you continue to shepherd us and carry us through. And so, Lord, I pray by your Spirit you would encourage us here today I pray for churches, Lord, around this nation who uh, made the decision to close, Lord, that you would uh, graciously shepherd and call your church in this new year in 2023. Um, Lord, that we would bear witness of you and that, that you would bring a revival to this land. We so desperately need it. The politicians aren't going to do it. Uh, the powers are not going to do it. The culture, Hollywood's certainly not going to do it. Lord, we need your church to have a revival. And so we pray that your spirit would fall and we pray that it would begin now and here in our hearts on this day. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.